You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. All right, last time we were all together and studying the book of Philippians, Paul was laying out to us the example that God has set for us, that God actually humbled himself and took on human likeness in the man Jesus, and that he died for us on the cross. And so Paul uses Jesus' example as the kind of life that we should live. He says we should have the same attitude as that of Jesus Christ. So as we look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 through 17, keep in mind that Paul has this same train of thought in mind. He begins in verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Sounds ominous. Now, some of you who have been sitting through Bible studies for a few weeks, maybe months or years, might look at a passage like this and think, This seems to contradict other passages that I've seen in the Bible, which seem to suggest that once you come into a relationship with God, that your salvation is secure. And what you'll see sometimes is Christian teachers will actually latch on to this passage in particular, and they try to reintroduce the fear-threat motive in the Christian life. That if you don't live a good life and avoid sin, then basically what's going to happen is that God is going to get you. He's going to seize your salvation away from you. And yet, I think that as we study this passage, it becomes clear that Paul isn't talking about our eternal salvation, but rather he's talking about how God wants to rescue us from the problem of our sin. And so really what he's talking about is working out what God has worked into us, as we'll see. But there's some thorny parts of this passage that we have to sort of figure out. First thing he says is, work out your salvation. So I guess upon uh, just a basic reading of this passage, it seems as if Paul is saying that we need to to work to maintain our salvation. But just like any word that you'll see in the English dictionary, it's the same with Greek. There is a wide range of meaning. This word salvation in Greek is the Greek word sozo. And sozo can mean a variety of different things. And I want to give you a little sample from the New Testament. That way you don't think I'm doing some sort of like interpretive judo on you, right? Look at Acts 27, verse 31. Uh, This is where Paul is sailing to Rome, where he actually writes the book of Philippians. And as they are about to be shipwrecked, he says, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. Clearly in this case, he's not talking about eternal salvation. He's talking about their physical death, rescuing them from their death. Another passage that sort of gives you an idea of the sort of range of this word is Matthew 14, verse 36. People brought all their sick to Jesus and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak 
and all who touched him were healed. Diasodzo. So in this case, what the New Testament writer is suggesting is that salvation, or the word for salvation, can mean rescue from a physical ailment or a disease. What about Luke 9, verse 27? For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Clearly in this case, he's not talking about eternal salvation. He's talking about saving your life in the sense of gaining meaning and purpose in life. Finding fulfillment, right? And then finally you have Luke 19, verse 10, where he is talking about salvation, where Jesus says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. So, as you can see, there's a variety of different ways that the New Testament uses this word save. And what we see is in the Bible, there are really two dimensions of salvation. On the one hand, you have salvation from the penalty of sin. And really, this stands as the central message of the Bible. That there is this incredible gulf between us and God, and that gulf exists because of the things that we've done wrong. And God, being just, can't simply overlook those problems because he's the final arbiter of justice in the universe. And so for him to overlook that would be a catastrophe. And so what God has done is instead of judging us, he's actually provided a way out for us. That he's actually given us an opportunity to experience rescue from his judgment. The Bible declares that God put on human flesh in the man Jesus Christ to come and die so that we can have a relationship with God and be rescued from the punishment that all of us deserve. It's almost as if we're on this rushing river heading toward a foaming waterfall and God basically plucks us out of that river and saves us. And so that's the first dimension of salvation, the the salvation from the penalty of sin. But as it turns out, God also wants to rescue us from the power of our sin as well. So the second dimension of salvation is that God wants to rescue us from the problems and addictions and relational patterns that plague us in our lives. And this is incredible news for a lot of us because many of us struggle deeply with with deep-seated issues and problems in our life that we feel helpless to change. And really what God has done through Jesus is he has given us incredible resources for change, life-lasting change. It's almost as if like your distant relative gave you like a $30 million inheritance and you're not able to get to that money until you're 35 years old. But in the meantime, you can get small disbursements of, you know, $50,000 each month until you turn 35. And in the same way, God has lavished us with salvation and promises that one day he will completely rescue us from our sin, that he will make us perfect as Christ. But until then, God wants to transform our lives and help us to gain freedom from these things that entrap us and enslave us. 
And so that's really what Paul is talking about here. As Homer A. Kent says, the famous theologian, working out salvation doesn't mean working for salvation, but making salvation operational in our lives. So essentially what we are doing is we are working out what God has worked into us through Jesus Christ. Now this part is a little difficult. The fear and trembling. What's there to be afraid of? If God has forgiven us and wants to just give us good things. Again, this word, fear, has a wide range of meaning. It's the word phobos, which could also mean just fear in general, but it could also mean to have reverence or awe. You know, when you come into the room with somebody who is, holds a very high status, there's a sense of reverence or awe. Even maybe you're kind of afraid of them because of the status that they hold. You feel a little bit nervous being around them. And in the same way, as we see God work in our lives and as we interact with the God of the universe, there's a sense of reverence and awe for who He is. I like the way the New Living Translation puts it, that you should work out your salvation with awe and reverence. And this really fits what we see in the New Testament, that God doesn't want us to be afraid. Think about what John says in 1 John 4, verse 17 and 18. He says, This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are all like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment and the one who fears is not made perfect in love. This is an astounding statement from God. You don't have to be afraid when you come into his presence. Because fear implies that there is guilt. And God says that he has completely wiped away all of our guilt by forgiving us in Jesus Christ. And so we have an amazing promise from God that you don't have to be afraid. And yet you might say to yourself, so I'm supposed to know that salvation can mean rescue and fear can mean reverence in order to understand this passage? So would I have to be some sort of Greek scholar or some theologian? This is like my second time here. Well, keep reading. He says, Therefore, it is God who works to you, in you to will and to act according to fulfill his good purpose. So, it's not just that we're supposed to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. It's God who is at work in you. Anytime you run into this word, it's important that you pause and think about what it connects. I remember hearing this saying a long time ago that's always stuck with me. It's kind of corny. But anytime you run into the word therefore, you should ask yourself this interpretive question. What is the therefore, therefore? Now try to forget that for the rest of your life. So, if you look at verse 12 and then you look at verse 13, they're connected, right? So, you don't have to look much further than verse 13 to realize that he's not talking about our eternal salvation. He's talking about something different. Because otherwise, why would God be at work in us if we're the ones who have to preserve our own salvation? 
He says, it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose, which is sort of an opaque way of saying this. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and power to do what pleases him. Yeah, nicely done. God is at work in you, not only to give you the will and the desire, but actually to carry out what is his good pleasure, to live obediently to him. Now, really, without this statement, the previous verse would read totally different, wouldn't it? And so, anytime you run into a thorny passage like this where you start to conclude, well, is this contradicting the rest of what I read in the Bible? Keep reading. Context, context, context usually helps you to unlock the meaning of some of these difficult passages. So, when we have God's power working in us, we have an incredible resource in Him. But there's also an alternative where we try to change ourselves without God's power. And believe it or not, even though we know that God gives us this resource of life transformation through Christ, there is this impulse to try to do it yourself. I don't know what it is. When we try to change without God's power, first of all, we might resort to faking it. I don't know if you've ever been to the pool like a public pool, and you see, you know, this little kid splashing around on the three-foot part of the pool saying, Mommy, Mommy, check it out, I'm swimming. And then you just look down in the bottom of the pool, and his feet are touching the bottom. You're like, you're faking it. (laughs) Do better. (laughs) And, you know, really that kind of describes a lot of Christian lives, right? It might describe your Christian life where you feel frustrated you're trying to change, and then you fail. You try to change, and then you fail. It's, it's this never-ending cycle of failure. And so finally, you get to the point where you feel despair over this problem in your life, and you decide, I'm just going to resort to just pretending like I have my life together, even though inwardly I know I'm struggling with this. Others don't even try. They have no desire to change But instead, they want to try to broadcast a picture of themselves to the world that's different from what's true behind closed doors, where they're living a double life. On the one hand, they say that they're trying to live for God, they're trying to be a holy, blameless person who's righteous, and yet they realize, just like everybody else, that they have problems. Imagine what would happen if an entire Christian community decided to fake it. You know, you show up to Sunday morning service and you encounter another Christian and both of you are posturing, trying to maintain this charade like you have your lives together, like you're living a righteous life, but both of you know that each one of you have problems. You suspect that they have a beat on your problem and you suspect that they've got problems that they're not talking about. That would be horrible, right? To live in a kind of fakey community like that. And no wonder so many non-Christian people, when they associate Christian in their mind, they have these words that pop up like hypocrisy, self-righteous. No wonder people look at Christianity and think of it as so unappealing. It's because they see this fake 
way of relating, people pretending like they have their lives together when in, re- in reality, their lives are in shambles. Another alternative would be external behavior modification. That's where you try to put things in place in your life through self-discipline. And really, it's a way to try to curb these impulses and desires that get us in trouble. And yet, one of the things that you'll realize is that no matter how hard you try, you're still enslaved to those desires, those temptations that inwardly are just churning. I remember after spending much of my teenage life incarcerated, I had to do this court-ordered substance abuse program. So I had to show up for like an entire year on parole to this uh, substance abuse group. And what was amazing is a lot of the people there had been sober for many, many years, sometimes decades. And they had seen substantial change in their lives, substantial freedom from their addiction. And yet, one of the things that was really noticeable is that even though they had freedom from their addiction, at least externally, one of the things that you notice as you would listen to people recount their their stories or share is how inwardly many of them were still enslaved. I remember sitting in a circle one time, and this guy stood up, and he says, I've been sober from alcohol for 20 years, but there is not a day that goes by where I don't want to use. Yesterday was the hardest day I've ever had during my sobriety. I was this close to using. And I thought to myself, that's not true liberation. You see, what God wants to do is much more than just external behavior modification. He actually wants to transform us from the inside out. He wants to change our minds, our perspective. He wants to transform our values, which then becomes reflected in our actions. You see, that's how we actually experience real life change. It's for God to work in us, in the way that we think, in our hearts. And then that issues in our actions as well. One way that we try to change ourselves without God's power is to try to attempt to suppress our negative tendencies. So we're just like this ball of anxiety trying to hold it all in. You know, imagine you're trying to be a more patient person. You're trying to be calm, right? So you've learned different things like breathing techniques. And on your long commute to work where you're stuck in traffic, you decide, I'm going to listen to Kenny G., on the radio, soft jazz, try to calm myself. But inevitably, somebody cuts you off in traffic, and you just feel this rush of anger, and you think to yourself, okay, I know what to do here. I need to count to 10. One, two, and in the middle of counting, for some reason, your anger causes you to think of your roommate who you've been bitter at for the last year, and you start to envision killing them with a saxophone as you're listening to Kenny G. You know, sometimes trying to suppress these negative tendencies in our lives is like playing a sick game of whack-a-mole. Have you ever played that at Chuck E. Cheese? It is one of the worst games 
anybody has created. I believe that Satan himself created this game. And the basic premise is there's a mole that pops out of a hole and you whack it and the next thing you know is a mole comes out of another hole. And that's how it feels for some of us to try to fix our problems, right? You know, you try to get get rid of or suppress this one issue and then another problem pops up over here and it's this maddening, never-ending cycle for us. I remember hearing a Christian teacher once say this, how can a messed up self fix a messed up self? When you're trying to fix yourself, it's really a futile thing. You really need an external force to come and to start to transform your life. You need somebody outside of yourself to work in you, to transform you. Some of you are here, and maybe what drove you to come here tonight or over the last few weeks is you have an out-of-control addiction. Or maybe there's something in your life that you just cannot fix and you feel helpless. Here's the thing. God wants to help you. He's eager to help you. The first step you need to take is to actually invite him into your life. And when you do that, you have a new influence in your life called the Holy Spirit who then works to start to transform you. You see, that's how God starts to change our lives slowly is through the work of the Holy Spirit, this new influence in our lives. Now, it's important for us to see this isn't a passive process. God isn't going to just do this apart from our will. A lot of times people think that spiritual growth just sort of happens even though I'm not doing anything. Like God is just, you know, squeezing some spiritual juice inside of us and then we're just changing overnight. That's not how it works. Just like our salvation, which began with faith, our spiritual growth continues by faith as well. And so it's faith through and through from start to finish. You know, although you aren't manufacturing change, you need to cooperate with God's work in your life. He wants to actually work in tandem with you to change. And again, it's important for you to realize God's not going to violate your free will. He wants your consent. He's not going to force you to change. He's not going to make you into something you don't want to be. And so you have to work alongside God in order to see this transforming power work out in your life. And I think for some of us, it just means taking different steps of faith. For some of you, it means getting more involved in Christian community. You've tried to do the thing where you just, it's just you and God where you're following him without any sort of community. But the thing you need to realize is that growing with God doesn't happen in a vacuum. One of the things that God wants to do most in your life is not to just wipe away your problems, but actually to make you a more loving person. You see, what what God is trying to do is he's trying to conform you into the image of his son Jesus. And if you could pick any characteristic about Jesus, the thing that would stand out is that he was loving. That's why Paul in 1 Timothy 1 verse 5 says, the goal of our instruction is love. And then in 1 Corinthians 13, which is one of the greatest chapters on love, Paul says, 
that there is faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. So the predominant characteristic that God wants to, to develop in you is to become a more loving person, just like his son Jesus. I think for some of us, it means taking the step of serving others. And I think some of us feel sort of trapped because I think many people who are do-nothing Christians feel a sense of dissatisfaction with their Christian lives. You know, on the one hand, they have, they've drawn lines of demarcation. They're just like, I'm not passing this line right here. Or I will only serve when it is actually convenient for me in my life. And yet, on the one hand, uh, they feel dissatisfaction. On the other, they also don't want to venture out into the world because they know how that was. Or maybe it's just convenient for them to stay in community because that's where all of their friends are. But inevitably, what's going to happen is you are going to feel growing dissatisfaction and you're going to get to a point where there is a why in the road. That may be next week, that may be next month, that may be years from now, but at some point there's going to be a why in the road where you are either going to decide, I want to live for God and love and serve and experience the real satisfaction that comes from following God, or I'm done with this Christian thing, living for God. And so, this cost-benefit analysis that we constantly keep running, is it worth it to live this Christian life despite the inconvenience? Ultimately, it comes to a point where we are going to have to decide. Also, getting to know God through prayer and studying His written Word. One of the avenues through which we can actually experience real transformation is by spending time with God. Ever notice when you start spending time with someone, you start picking up their sayings, maybe some of their mannerisms, and they're doing the same with you? That's because when you spend enough time with somebody, you start to change and, and pick up some of their characteristics. And as you spend time with God in prayer or studying what He has to say in His written Word, you start to see the world through His lens. You start to adopt His values. And here's the thing, God is eager to spend time with you. And he knows that it's good for you because it actually is changing you and transforming you into his likeness. I love the way that J. Oswald Sanders puts it. He says, both scripture and experience teach that it is we, not God, who determine the degree of intimacy with him that we enjoy. We are at this moment as close to God as we really choose to be. He's eager to spend time with you, to change you. And the question is, are you going to devote that time to spend time with him? The last few verses are in 14 through 16, where Paul says, Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine like them as stars in the sky, among them like stars in the sky, as you hold firmly to the word of life. So we talked a few weeks ago about arguing. We talked about that extensively in the first chapter of Philippians. 
we want to sort of key in on grumbling. Grumbling. This is a onomatopoeia, which means that it's a word that sounds like what it describes. To grumble means to mutter or to murmur. You know, when you have a bad day at work and you come home, you're just kind of muttering about, you know, problems that you're having and you're just fuming, you're just churning because you're so angry about it, right? It's inward complaining and outward complaining in the case that Paul's talking about. And you might look at this and think, well, what's the big deal? In our culture today, it's very common for people to complain. They sound off on social media about small problems that they have or big problems that they have. It's very common today to just complain about your life. And yet, we see God takes this very seriously. In, in the Wilderness Wanderings episode in Israel's history, this is after the Exodus when God delivered them from Egypt. So they're wandering around in the desert of the Sinai, and the nation of Israel starts to grumble continuously. We're told in Exodus 16, verse 2 through 8, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around with pots of meat, which doesn't sound that great to me. Hey, man, do you want a, a meat pot? They ate all the food that they wanted, or we wanted, but you have brought us out here into the desert to starve this into, with the entire assembly of Israel. Moses said to them, the Lord has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but you're grumbling against the Lord. You see, what they were doing is they were forgetting what God had done for them. They were forgetting that God had delivered them from 400 years of slavery. They forgot that Pharaoh had enacted this genocide upon the nation of Israel to try to curb the population of the Israelites in Egypt. And so you can imagine how from God's perspective, how frustrating it would be to hear this. So, I guess the question is, why is it so bad that we sit around and grumble? I mean, after all, we see ads on TV or wherever we're browsing, and these ads are targeting or aimed at trying to create within us a sense of dissatisfaction about our lives. That's how they sell us things. They make us feel like the things that we have aren't good enough and that the thing that we can have is what's really going to make us happy. And so really, we're living in a culture of complaint and grumbling. It's common for us to come home after a long day of work and just to vent about our lives and how bad we've had it. And we think, oh, I feel so great now. Thanks for sitting with me for the last hour while I just sat here and vented about how horrible my life is. I feel so refreshed. <laughs> well, one of the real problems with grumbling is, first of all, it rewrites the past and compares it to the present. You know, that's what the Israelites were doing. They were like, remember all those pots of meat in, in Egypt? It was so amazing back then. 
And they were stripping out all of the terrible memories, the mistreatment, the persecution, the marginalization, the dehumanization that they experienced. And we sometimes fall into the same way of thinking where things get hard, our problems start to come up to the surface and God is dealing with them. It's painful and we start to look back on the past and think, back when before I was following God, it seemed like life was so much easier. We start to grumble. It also stems from an attitude of entitlement. We feel like we deserve better. And so we grumble about our lives, about how we should have it better, how God should give us more. One of the things that uh, people were getting called out for, the celebrities, were just some of the insensitive things they were saying during COVID. During uh, her TV show here, Kim Kardashian talked about how she was just really tired of having to deal with her kids She, uh, on her show, uh, Life with the Kardashians, says, Kanye tested positive for COVID, and he's not able to help with the kids, but I'm less worried about him because he's feeling better. But I have to entertain four kids, and I'm doing this all by myself. She added, my kids will not leave me alone. And she just got lambasted on social media. Can you imagine watching this show as an as a impoverished single mom with four kids and hearing Kim Kardashian complaining about her life? That would be really insensitive, right? A little tone deaf. And the reason I bring this up is not to bash on Kim Kardashian. The real point is this. According to God, you and I are the most privileged people in the universe. God says that he has adopted you and me as sons and daughters. That he has made us heirs to his kingdom. And so when we sit around complaining about our lives, how do you think God feels about that? You see, at the heart of grumbling is the belief that we deserve better than we're getting. And yet when we ask God for what we deserve, we should get nothing more than his judgment. But he doesn't do that to us, right? He doesn't judge us. Instead, he shows us mercy and love. And he exalts us to a high place. You know, we often use grumbling to try to justify unbelief. This happened in the case of the Israelites where as they were promised this land, they refused to go in because they were intimidated and fearful of the people who were living in that land. And so the people refused to go in there. In fact, we're told that they were grumbling within the camp saying, does God really hate us that he would send us into the land where the Amorites live so that we can die? Let's find ourselves a leader and go back to Egypt. And so their grumbling became a justification for their inactivity, their inaction. And that's usually what happens with us as well, is that our grumbling justifies our lack of faith. Finally, it's contagious. You know, when you grumble about your life, it spreads and it creates really this environment, this culture of ingratitude. 
that should not characterize Christian believers. And he says, finally, that the reason why we should do this is not just so that we can experience life change. This is not just about you. It's not just about me. It's also about the watching world. He says, it's so that you become, become, can become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like the stars in the sky. You see, God wants to change your life so that you can stand out by contrast to the rest of the world. That your lack of grumbling, your lack of arguing, this sense of love that people see in you is something that stands out as really different and unique. And when people ask us, so why are you so weird? You can tell them it's, it's because I have Jesus in my life. He's transformed me. You know, my friend uh, was running with uh, his neighbor, and his neighbor is this non-Christian guy who had a really bad experience growing up in church. And one of the things that he talks about is how his neighbor complained that in his church, it seemed like all of the families who were part of this church just constantly were fighting with each other, devouring each other. And that his parents, who had been in that church for 40 years, were completely alone because they couldn't trust anyone in that church. And one of the things that he remarked to my friend was he said, you know, you and your neighbor, who also goes to our church, one of the things that really just seems different about you guys is that you guys have been friends for decades. You live next to each other. You go to the same church, and you seem to actually care about one another. I just think that's something really different I've never seen before. And so, as people look at our lives, it, cr it creates this attractive picture of who God is. You know, God wants to change you to fix these problems in your life, but he ultimately wants to do this so that the watching world can look at us and say, there's something different. You know, we live in a world that's so divided. People fight about various different things, politics, social issues, economic issues. And in this world where it seems like things are so dark, Christians should stand out as light, like stars in a dark sky. Yeah, I feel grateful that uh, even though there are times where I feel very frustrated with myself, where I continue to just make the same mistakes over and over again, that even when I'm ready to give up, you tell me that you are... Uh, never going to give up on me, and that you never give up on any of us, and are committed to seeing us change. And uh, we thank you, too, that you give us the power to do that, that we don't have to trust in ourselves or try to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps to try to experience this real transformation, but that you offer it to us as a gift, just like you do our salvation. I pray, Lord, for those of us who don't know you personally, who've never invited your life-transforming influence into their lives, 
I pray that they would just in this moment humbly turn to you and to receive the forgiveness that Jesus offers. And um, we thank you for anybody who did that in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.